American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to no, another let's start again. episode. Let's start again. Ready? Welcome, Welcome to, to another, another episode, episode of American, American Timelines. Time I'm Amy and that's Joe. And now I'm obsessed with time. And that was Matt Truman you heard singing us in. If you've ever wondered who the great musician is, that's Matt Truman from Matt Truman's Ego Trip. That's right. The greatest American band by their music. And we are in 1952 in October to be precise. Yeah. And we are all by ourselves again today. We are. Uh, yeah, we're uh, guest-free this week. Yeah. Because <coughs> sometimes, fuck the guests, you know what I'm saying? That's right. Nah, so, I mean. So let's jump right in. Yeah, so we're going to jump right in. We're in October. And we're going to cheat a little bit. We're going to put a little bit of November in this October 1952 episode. Right. At the end. Okay. So we're going to start with, I got some simple things this week. October 3rd, 1952. Mm-hmm was the first video recording on magnetic tape in Los Angeles, California. Oh, like uh, you're talking like... Like audio tape, VHS tape. It's the first time they've ever recorded anything on magnetic tape. Okay. I thought that would be earlier than that, I guess. 1952. Okay. Before that, I guess they... I don't know what they... Did they record anything? Like... Yeah. Remember when they, they admitted the, oh, the phonograph... Phono- well, they had records. movies and stuff. Yeah, the, that's right. Yeah. But not magnetic tape. What did they put it on? Old I don't film, know. like film. Celluloid? Celluloid, maybe, yeah. Yeah. But celluloid burns. C- cellulose. All right, what's next? I don't know technology about no, that. No, me neither. Much. October 7th, Joseph Woodland and Bernard Silver received the first patents for optical barcodes on October 7th. Oh. Oh, that seems early for that. For October seventh, nineteen fifty two. To be the bar, to be like the same month they got optical barcodes that that they first did via uh, you know, magnetic yeah. tape. Yeah, that is weird. Also, that same day, American Bandstand premiered. Originally called just Bandstand, that pre- show is so fucking old. It's so fucking old. It premiered uh, on a Philadelphia TV station on October seventh, nineteen fifty two. What's the matter I with you? The, the microphone's directly under my eyes. <laughs> I can't see. You can't see what you're reading. Um, yeah, it started on a Philadelphia TV station with DJ Bob Horn serving as host before Dick Clark. Dick oh, Clark, Bobby Horn. Dick Clark didn't get there until the 56, I think. But it premiered locally in late March of 1950 as Bandstand on Philadelphia television station WFIL-TV Channel 6, now WPVI-TV, as a replacement for a weekday movie that had shown predominantly British films, and then I guess it became American Bandstand nationally uh, yeah. here in 1952. It was hosted by Bob Horn as a television adjunct to his radio show of the same name on WFIL Radio. Bandstand cool. mainly featured short musical films produced by Snader Telescriptions. Boy, that's really different than what it ended up being. Yeah, and official films with occasional studio guests. 
This incarnation was an early predecessor of of sorts of the music video shows that became popular in the 80s. Yeah. Featuring films that are themselves the ancestors of music videos. Horn, however, was disenchanted with the program. He Mm. was like, fuck this noise. So he wanted to have the show changed to a dance program with teenagers dancing along on camera as the records played. Man, I want to get some teenagers in here. Yeah. God damn, I hate this format. Let's get some teens in here. Based on that idea that came from a radio show, he based that idea from a radio show on WPEN, the 950 Club, hosted by Joe Grady and Ed Hurst. This more familiar version of Bandstand debuted on October 7th, 1952, as they were talking about, okay. in Studio B, which was located in their just-completed addition to the original 1947 building in West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground. No, stop it. My days. Stop it. Anyway. Uh, that was always on on Sunday afternoons when I was little. American Bandstand. Or like really? late morning. It was right. Soul Train was on too around the same time. They're kind of back to back. The studio couldn't fit more than two hundred teenagers that first when they first did that. So anyway, and then in nineteen, well, fast forward nineteen fifty six when Horn got fired after a drunk driving arrest, as WIL and dual owner Walter Annenberg's the Philadelphia Inquirer at the same time were doing a series on drunken driving, mm. so they had to fire him, and he was also. Also, reportedly involved in a prostitution ring mm-hmm. and brought up on morals charges. Uh, so he was temporarily pr- replaced by producer Tony Mamarella before the job went to Dick Clark permanently. Okay. A little, little background on American mm-hmm. Bandstand. A little scandalous. Okay. And then on October 7th, that same day, the Yankees beat the Dodgers four games to three in the 49th World Series. All right. And it just so happens that you can watch this Entire game seven. It went into seven games, <coughs> which is a big deal. Like yeah. it's, it was close. Uh, you can watch the entire game seven on YouTube. Oh, of the 1952. I will not World be Series. doing that. You won't be, but it's like very relaxing. It's like it takes you to a simpler. That's how more all baseball time. is. Yeah, it all is. Oh, yeah. and there's out. something about these old timey guys talking. Yeah. Like uh, anyway, this series featured the three-time defending champions, the Yankees beating the Brooklyn Dodgers in seven games. The Yankees won their fourth consecutive title, tying the mark they set in 1936-39. to Under manager Joe McCarthy, Casey Stengel became the second manager in Major League history with four consecutive World Series championships. This was the Yankees' 15th World Series win, uh, and the third time they defeated the Dodgers in six years. In Game 7, the tying game, Yankees second baseman Billy Martin made it a great catch, preserving the Yankees' two-run lead. Also, the home run hit by Mickey Mantle during the eighth inning of Game 6 was significant because it was the first of his record 18 career World Series home runs. Wow. 18, 18 career home runs. World Series home runs. Like, wow. That's insane. Yeah. It's just crazy to be to, to think, for me, mm-hmm. that you can watch on YouTube. I can watch a game with Mickey Mantle. Like, right. In my main... In my mind, when I hear Mickey Mantle, that's like ancient history. Mm-hmm. That's like, as, mm-hmm. in my brain, it's as old as the pyramids. Well, I think it's a little. Anybody alive in 1952, you're older than the pyramids. <laughs> no, that's you not shouldn't what I'm buy any green bananas. Yeah, I know. You're going to die soon. No, you're not. No, you might not. Don't buy any suits you need to grow into. But you can watch a, a game with Mickey Mantle and Billy Martin. Anyway. All right. Also, one thing, I, I've been sprucing in things, sprinkling in things that. Since that first episode of the 1952 year that we got in, I mm-hmm. I forgot all the things that didn't have dates, so I'm just sprinkling them in every That's episode. Fine. So the B-52 bomber yeah. started serving in 1952. 
Oh. Uh, it isn't being planned to be retired until the 2040s. By then, it'll have been continuous service for almost a century. Wow. But the B-52 bomber, I didn't get yeah. that that's what the 52 meant. Oh, because it's 1952. 1952. I think that's what it means. It's, yeah, it might as well. Yeah. Might as well be, even if it's not. Because I looked We're going to say it is. I think it is. I looked up the history of the B-52 bomber, and it was just tons and tons of pages on Wikipedia. Oh, God, It was worry, really, don't. really boring. Yeah. But I could gather from some of the stuff I was reading that they named them, because there was like a there was like a 48 bomber, a 46-something uh, else. Yeah. And I think they were named after the years. The 52 one is what they really liked, so they've stuck with it ever since. I guess. And the B-52s are a band. It's true. That are pretty good. So Love you can't Shack, change. baby. Love Shack, baby. Right. Love Shack. You know, I think that guy, the guy that sings in that band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He might be gay, I think. I knew you were going to say that. How'd you know? Why does it matter? It doesn't matter. Because gay is great. We should uplift him for being gay. All right. I'm just my gaydar. It's my gaydar. You have gaydar. You always talk about your gaydar. All right. You're a gaydar. I am a gaydar. All right. What's next? October 12th, 1952. Mm You know, a lot of times when I look this stuff up on Take Me Back To or On This Day dot com, they have some dumb things. And sometimes I decided to just look up the dumb thing and see what I can find. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. The dumb thing was that on October 12th, 1952, KBTV, now KUSA TV channel nine in Denver, Colorado Mm -hmm. and ABC channel begins broadcasting. Mm -hmm. You know, at at the first glance, you might be like, who cares? Yep. That's what I'd be like. Who cares about that? (laughs) But I decided to see like, you know, I would like to just give a shout out to like maybe somebody from Denver is listening and they'd be so excited if we mentioned one of their local TV anchors or something, or their local station. Oh my god, they mentioned uh, they mentioned KUSA TV, and so I looked up just to see like, do they have any goofy looking anchor guys or anything? Um, and they, the, all I could find, I could only find one guy named Kyle on there, um, and I, it looks like I didn't write his last name, but Kyle. <laughs> but, but the station basically was recently in the news in Denver for an incident in which a security guard they hired. Shot and killed a Patriot muster rioter. Um, a what? A, so they did a a Patriot muster rally, which is kind of like basically a Trump rally. It was like the Patriots, oh, the God. Tea Party rally. Yeah. So this past October during the pandemic, somewhere in Denver, there happened to be a Black Lives Matter rally right next to, and this happened all across the country. There was mm-hmm. one in Charlotte. There's a lot of these that happened this way. Black Lives Matter rally and a Trumpster rally in the mm-hmm. same area, and then they start getting into it, and yeah. something happens. And this one, I guess it, maybe it made national news, but I never heard about it, but I found it looking up this guy's name from the station, Kyle, whatever his last name was. Um, and so it's, and I found an opinion piece blaming that Kyle guy, like, oh, he's a liberal troll, and blah, blah, blah. And he hires security, and he hires somebody to shoot a Trump supporter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so... They do, the station does hire security when they go out to report on these kind of things because, well, look, they get violence, you know, right. so I don't blame them. But, but, de- but anyway, this guy turns out this guy they hired, apparently they hired a security outfit who then hired another security outfit and hired this guy. So he's like three removed. Mm-hmm. Turns out he wasn't, nobody did their checking, like he wasn't uh, approved or whatever. He, oh. he wouldn't have passed a background check, I think, because he had some issues. Um. But, and he was clear, the guy was clearly a very politically leading guy left. Uh, But Denver prosecutors charged Matthew Dolloff with second degree murder for shooting and killing 49-year-old Lee Keltner on October 10th. 
Dolph was working was the guy working as a security guard for Nine News, and he was and reporters who were re- reporting at the Patriot Rally in Civic Center Park when he and Keltner got into a dispute. Keltner discharged pepper spray at Doloff. Mm. It looks like he clearly did that first. Yeah. There's, there's a great picture online. If you look this up, mm-hmm. you can see the Trump supporter guy just sh- blowing the uh, pepper spray, pepper spray right in this other guy's face, and he's holding a gun pointed at him. Yeah. So it's clearly right before he shot him. Yeah. Um, so then he shot Keltner in reaction to that, and I guess killed hit him in the head and killed him. Uh, Jesus. Doug Richards, Dolph's attorney, has previously argued that the 31-year-old acted in self-defense when he opened fire. I guess this is going to go to trial. Well, in depending August. on what fucking state you're in, yeah. because in Florida, you know, you can mow down protesters with your car and you're Florida. Fine. Well, that one that just happened, the gay pride thing you're talking about. Yeah, but that didn't, that was an accident. That was an accident. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, if it hadn't been, it would be probably okay. Why? Because they, there's a law that oh, says they you pass can that law run over people run with your people car yeah. and they're in a protest. That's crazy. I know. It's but a crazy then, world. But, but then if they turn around and shoot you in the head while you're driving and running over them, then, then you won't go to jail because of their stand-your-ground law. Well, we've heard our Scottish friends tell us in Scotland, like, you can get in more trouble shooting a burglar trying to break into your home yeah. than them breaking into your home. Yeah. That they're the opposite. Oh, well, the world's messed up. Yeah. But on October 15th, 1952? Yes. We'll, we'll cleanse our palate with something written by E.B. White and illustrated oh, by e. Garth, Garth Williams, published by Harper Charlotte's Brothers. Charlotte's Web? Charlotte's Web was Aww. 1952, October 15th, 1952. I love that story. It was a book of children's it's literature sad. by American author E.B. White and illustrated by Garth Williams, published on October 15th, 1952 by Harper Brothers. I just said all that. The novel tells the story of a livestock pig named Wilbur yep. and his friendship with a barn spider named Charlotte. When Wilbur is in danger of being slaughtered by the farmer, Charlotte writes messages praising Wilbur, such as some pig in her web, in order to persuade the farmer to let him live. Oh, you remember that story? Yeah. I remember li- I reading that when I was real little. Yeah, I love that story. And I, I don't know it's why. It's sad because yeah. I think she dies at the end. I think Charlotte. I don't remember. Somebody dies. I think it's Charlotte. Everybody dies in the end. Yeah. It was written in White's dry, low-key manner. Charlotte's Web is considered a classic of children's literature, enjoyable to adults as well as children. The description of the experience of swinging on a rope swing at the farm is an often cited example of rhythm in writing, as the pace of the sentences reflects the motion of the swing. I didn't oh, realize wow, that. Oh, that's cool. In 2000, Publishers That's Weekly, amazing when people can do that. When they're in their writing, like yeah, I have no idea meter and all that stuff in Some writing. Amazing writers. I, yeah. I don't. I don't know how you. Yeah, we we worked with. I'm working currently with this guy on a Nerdy Night show. Yeah. Named Manish, and he's he's a like a copy writer, like a copy editor, like for like mm-hmm. I think ads and stuff. And he wrote this thing just like as for a sketch, and it was like beautiful. I was like, I've never. I've never thought a comedy sketch was written beautifully before. It was amazing. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and so I'm going to hopefully use him forever. He's a cool guy. Uh, Anyway, in 2000, Publishers Weekly listed this book as the best-selling children's paperback of all time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great writers. I guess my point with that was great writers are very, it's it's impressive. It's a skill Mm -hmm. that I wish I had. Uh, Charlotte's Web was adapted into an animated feature by Hanna-Barbera Productions. Did you know that? And Sagittarius Productions in 1973, an animated version? I don't yeah, know that. I Good. think. Yeah, I think so. 
And then, of course, everybody knows about the movie that came out in 2003. Yes. Um, and there was a video game, I guess, in 2006. There was a Charles video game. Jesus. Uh, anyway, White's, E.B. E. B. White said his overall, you know, he had a great quote about his motivation for the book. Mm-hmm. He never revealed it, but he wrote, I haven't told why I wrote the book, but I haven't told you why I sneeze either. A book is a sneeze. A book is a sneeze? Yep. I don't get it. Well, I, you don't know why we sneeze, but we sneeze. Yeah. And you don't need to know why I wrote my book, so fuck off, I think. That's it's what, pretty, it's pretty saying. Go fucking... Go suck an egg. That's right. Shove get out of here. Ass. It's a sneeze and get out of here. Yeah. Go so shove it right up your asshole. Yeah. Okay, October 18th, 1952 was the date of the first Mad Magazine issue. Oh, that's an old classic. That is an old classic. I used to love Mad Magazine. Really? Like, I have very clear memories of the of the, of the the drugstore we would get Mad Magazine from. Yeah. Just the neighboring town over we'd go, and every time we'd go, I'd look at the new Mad Magazine, I'd, used to, I'd be able to get one. Our kid's missing all of that because everything's on their phone. So I looked, I was looking, doing research for this Mad Magazine thing, and it's got a website. You can subscribe to it. It's not as often, I don't think, and I guess they have a printed issue, and I guess you can, I don't know. I, I'm, that's it's not the clear. thing. You, the printed issue's the fun. Yeah, Who cares? Just subscribe to a website. I think you can read it online with jokes, uh, but jokes yeah. are always good. But yeah, you like to fold because you could fold the thing yeah. in the back. And um, Anyway. That was the day of the first Mad Magazine issue. American Humor Magazine, founded in 1952 by editor Harvey Kurtzman and publisher William Gaines. Mad Magazine launched as a comic book before it became a magazine. Oh, it did. It was widely imitated and influential, affecting satirical media as well as the cultural landscape of the 20th century. With editor Al, Al Fed, Feldstein. Al, I thought it was Alfred E. Newman. No, the editor was Al Feldstein. Okay. Uh, he increased readership to more than 2 million during its 1973-74 circulation peak. But that's where they got the name Alfred E. Newman. Oh. Um, so I I kind of... So if you don't know what Mad Magazine is, it's basically like a Saturday Night Live type of thing for but a magazine. Like it's written to make fun of famous TV and movies and whatever. Right. And it was always pretty good. And then there's other little, there's Spy versus Spy, little battle guy. Was, anyway, it's, it was great. A lot of people have fond memories of it. Um, not True. millennials, but Generation X. Yeah. We really loved it. Um, Alfred E. I Newman, would say Boomers, too, obviously. If boomers, I like it, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Boomers and, yeah. Alfred E. Newman, I looked up that, I've always wondered, why, who is that guy? Why is he on there? And he's a fictitious mascot and cover boy of the magazine. The character's distinct smiling face, parted red hair, gap-toothed smile, freckles, protruding nose, and scrawny body actually first emerged in U.S. iconography Mm -hmm. decades prior to his association with the magazine. So he didn't, he wasn't just with the magazine. He appeared in early 20th century advertisements for painless dentistry. (laughs) The origin of his what me worry motto came from that. Um, And he also appeared in, in early 1930s. In the early 1930s, on a presidential campaign postcard with the caption, Sure, I'm for Roosevelt. Uh, <laughs> and the magazine's editor, Harvey Kurtzman, claimed the character in 1954. He claimed him for the magazine and named him Alfred E. Newman uh, after Mad Second Editor Al Feldstein. So there you go. There we go. Yep. That was kind of the end. I never, mm-hmm. never knew where I came from. Paranormal horror author Eve S. Evans introduces a brand new spine-chilling release. 
Supernatural 911 Calls, available on Amazon today. First responders with any real time on the job believe in ghosts. They've experienced events they can't otherwise explain. Same with other professions that deal with injuries, accidents, or death. Police officers, firemen, 911 operators, they've seen the worst that people can do to one another, and they've all had brushes with the unexplained. Don't believe in ghosts? This book might change your mind and steal any hope of sleep. These stories are unexplainable, true accounts from first responders, police officers, firemen, and 911 operators, told from the perspective of everyday people. Every single tale between these covers is 100% true. Think you can explain them? We dare you to try. And then we're getting through October quick. October yeah. 19th, Alain Bombard. Alain Bombard. It's a guy. I think it's Alan, but it's A-L-A-I-N, so it might be Alain. Mm-hmm. He departed from the Canary Islands on his solitary journey across the Atlantic Ocean with almost no provisions, allegedly, and only a sextant for navigation to test his theory that a shipwrecked person could survive. Whoa. So he was bound to sh- go. He wanted to prove that he, he wanted could to survive go and take no crash? supplies. I mean, he just was out on his own, like just on a on a raft. He oh, my God. went out to prove that he could survive for several days without supplies and stuff. All right. Now, I had to look up what a sextant was because I wasn't sure. I think sure. it's a navigational instrument. Yeah, you knew right away. There's a picture online. It's a doubly reflected navigation instrument that measures the angular distance between two visible objects. It Basically, you can tell where stars are, so it's for like celestial navigation. Oh, come. North Star and everything. Uh, but anyway, this guy was a French biologist, physician, and politician famous for sailing in the small... You know, I guess he was in a small boat across the Atlantic Ocean without provision. Mm-hmm. Because he theorized that a human being could very well survive the trip across the ocean without provisions and decided to test it by doing this. He survived, He reports that he survived by fishing and using fish as both a source of fresh water and food. So there's a way you can get fresh, non-salt water out of a fish's body, apparently. Um, and that's what his whole kind of thing was based on like okay because you need fresh water so yeah somehow he did that so he had self-made harpoons and hooks and he and he would harvest surface plankton with a small net uh and i guess he would drink a limited amount of seawater for long periods on his trip but how now how long he was he was there he left here in october what did i say 19th yeah and he reached barbados december 23rd wow but I guess he bumped into a ship at one point, and they offered him a meal. Uh, so I think he may have cheated a little bit. And then there's other people that claimed he took water with him. Like so, it's kind of like there's some iffy yeah. things. So I don't know if it's. I would think you'd have but to take some water with you, regardless. You can't survive in this heat and the sun like that. Well, he is claim that was his whole claim was that you could, and that's mm-hmm. what he wanted to say, but. Hmm. So who knows? But yeah, who knows? So people say he might have been lying about some of that, but um, he's probably a but lunatic. But rainwater, he got some rainwater. But he he died in two thousand five at age eighty. Okay. Yeah. And then I have my next thing is controversial. Okay. Only because the dates seem inaccurate. I have see it listed sometimes as October thirtieth, mm-hmm. and sometimes as November third. Okay. So I don't know which day is the true date. Okay. So that's the controversy. But we need to know when Clarence Birdseye 
sold the first frozen peas. Yeah. He was the first guy to freeze vegetable like peas and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an American inventor, entrepreneur, and naturalist considered the founder of the modern frozen food industry. One of nine children, Birdseye grew up in Brooklyn before heading to Amherst College and began his scientific career with the U.S. government. Among his inventions during his career was the double belt freezer. Oh, he did? He invented the freezer, too, the huh? double belt freezer. <laughs> According to Eater.com, uh, the frozen food industry would be nothing without Clarence Birdseye, the man responsible for Birdseye frozen foods. You see that they're yeah. still for sale, right? I buy them. It's currently owned by Pinnacle Foods, Inc. People have been freezing foods as a means of preservation since early as early as 1000 B.C. when the Chinese we don't need to go into ice the sellers. The Birdseye figured out food. the logistics of selling frozen foods. How could he freeze it fast so it didn't deform the food tissue? Oh, How would he package it? it? How would he transport the product? You know, he had to figure out all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so he was in Canada and all this other stuff anyway. So then we're not exactly sure you know, he did all this different kind of freezing. He used these. This was kind of interesting. He used, uh, as a young engineer in Canada, he often froze his his catch of fish after a day to keep it fresh. And he learned it from the Inuit who would fish from holes in the ice and let it freeze instantly mm-hmm. in the frigid temperatures. And... He noticed when they their thought their thought it wasn't mushy like other frozen foods. Anything because it's like doing it so instantly. Um, but he used a what did he he according to the handbook of frozen foods which exists, <laughs> Birdseye placed food between two metallic plates at negative thirteen degrees against a low convection tunnel to flash freeze the product. That's I said terrible. flash frozen. Flash freezing. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what you said. Um, anyway, so okay. Well, he's a brilliant man. Yeah, he's a brilliant guy, and that so that we're at, that's and that's all I got for October of 1952. And so we finished October with no murders oh. and no rapes, and this episode is over. Just no, kidding. We're gonna keep more. going because Amy's got something. I do. Uh, and and it's on November second, you have something I understand. The same day as a birthday. Cue the music. Amy, Amy hates Aziz Yildirim was born November 2nd, 1952, the 36th chairman of the Turkish multi-sport club Fenerbahce. What? That's a Turkish multi-sport. All right. Fenerbahce. I'm going to talk about... The the 36th chairman, Aziz Yildirim, was born. All right. We're done. (laughs) We're done. Yeah. All right. I'm going to talk about... I love you. um, The short, sad life of Derek Bentley. A short, sad life of Derek Bentley. And this, my main source is an article with that title. Okay. Uh, by Jeffrey Watson. Jeffrey and Watson. Also, is it Jeffrey with a G? Yeah. Okay. And also Murderpedia, Wikipedia combo. Murderpedia there. and Wikipedia. And um, this is a London, England, so it's not American. It's not an American timeline No, story. it's not. It's an England timeline It story. is. So Which a lot of people would say, you can't fucking do that. You're American timelines, assholes. And I but, say, you try finding something from October 1952 or November 1952 that's in America. You bitch. And you'd give it to me, and I'd be happy to read it instead. Yeah, you bitch. That's right. saying that. I'm not. You're not the bitch. I'm the person accusing you or mad at you is a bitch. So in 1953. Yeah. 
Oh, we're jumping to 1953. This is a 1952 episode, babe. Derek William Bentley was executed for the murder of a policeman. Oh, he was executed. He was only 19 years old, and okay. Bentley had a deeply troubled life. Oh, boy. He was born in 1933 at the in the East End of London. All right. His family was decent and stable, but Bentley had his own problems. He Uh-oh. suffered a serious head injury when young. That's it. He was intellectually this might impaired. Might as well be the head injury podcast. I know, and he struggled at school. He fell into a pattern of truancy and petty crime, and at age fifteen was sent to a juvenile detention home. Oh, his work record was poor, and in nineteen fifty-two he was rejected from national service because he was mentally substandard. Oh boy! He fell into bad company, mixing with a boy named Christopher Craig. Craig was only 16, Uh-oh. but came from a family with criminal connections. He sounds like a bad seed. He was knowing in the ways of the underworld. Uh-oh. So even though Craig was the younger of the two, Bentley, who had a mental age of around 11, yeah. uh, fell completely under the spell of this streetwise g- guy, right? Streetwise. So then on <laughs> on the evening of... Stop it. On the evening of Sunday... November 2nd, 1952. Yeah, the same day that Aziz Yildirim yes. was born. Bentley met with Craig, and there was no forward planning. They met by accident. They just happened to bump into each other. They did. Okay. And they agreed to attempt to burgle some local businesses. Okay. Hey, man, I bumped into this guy, Craig, and he just like, yeah, we decided to go burgle. Yep. Um, Craig was armed. He carried a Colt 45 revolver and a knife. You know, I did that one time. I bumped into a guy at Walmart one time. I'm not going to say this guy's name uh, to incriminate him. And that happened to me. I bumped into him by chance. He was like, hey, I'm going to steal these VCRs. You want to come with me? I was like, no, I don't want to come with you. Actually, he didn't tell me what he was doing. He said, hey, come with me. And then I watched him go to the electronics section. I walked with him. He grabbed like three VCRs. And then he walked to the outdoor section of Walmart, like the outdoor thing, like where um, you buy like gardening supplies I know what you're or whatever. Say. And he put, them, he put them like under the fence. Oh, I thought you meant he put them in the coolers. That's what I thought you were going to say. No, no. He placed them under the fence. Like, oh, just there's a little bit yeah. under the fence you could reach. Yeah. And he just, he said, the key is you, you just walk around like you, like you, you're not, so, like, you know, you're supposed to do this. You think nobody's going to notice that the same guy keeps walking through here with the same VCR under his arm? No, no. He put three of them under the, he went outside. He took three VCRs, put them outside, and put them under the fence. And then he walked back out and he walked out of the store and went and got, went and got his car pulled up grabbed the VCRs and put them in his car god and i was like nervous and shaking and i was like what are we doing i was just here to buy potato chips or something i was like i am I'm like I'm yeah like a, a now you can't do that because there's cameras everywhere but this was in the 90s yeah yeah anyway oh, but you could bump into somebody and get yeah. into a crime and then uh craig also gave bentley a knife and a spike knuckle duster Wait a minute. He gave him a knife and a... Say this again? A spiked knuckle duster. A spiked knuckle buster? Knuckle duster. duster. So that's yeah. like uh, brass knuckles I or think, something? I think. That's a cool name. So there's... Spiked knuckle duster. Their target... I'll give you a spiked knuckle duster, say. Sorry. Their target was a warehouse in South London. Oh. But they were spotted climbing over the fence, and somebody called the police. Okay. The police cornered Bentley and Craig on the roof of the warehouse. You mean the 5-0? Yeah. And so they the climbed up on the roof, yep. and then the police climbed up on the roof after Following them. them. Yeah. And then Detective Sergeant Frederick Fairfax Uh-oh. grabbed Bentley yeah. and then arrested him, okay. handcuffed him and everything. All right. Right? Um, meanwhile, Craig, he's still free. Yeah. And he's the mastermind of the whole thing. Taunting the police. Oh, no. Don't taunt the police. 
And um, what happened next is the subject of controversy, though. According to the police, Bentley broke free of his grasp and called out, Let him have it, Chris! Immediately following which, Craig pulled out his pistol and fired, superficially wounding D.S. Fairfax. Okay. It was common ground that although he was at the time free of police control, Bentley did nothing to flee, nor did he take out his own weapons. Instead, he just simply remained alongside the police as though he remained under arrest. Hmm. Over the next 20 to 30 minutes, Craig and the police exchanged fire. Wow. One bullet struck... 20 to 30 minutes? Yeah. One bullet struck police constable Cindy Miles between the eyes, killing him instantly. Oh, no. It's important to note that the shooting of PC Miles occurred about 15 minutes after Bentley had been arrested. Okay. Craig eventually ran out of ammunition, dived off the roof, and he fractured his pelvis. Dove off the roof. And Bentley and Craig were taken into custody and questioned. I still, like, I wonder what they, you know, they're British guys, right? In England? Mm-hmm. I wonder what the taunting, uh, 1950s English taunting of a cop was. It was probably so polite. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. you. Hey, hey, hey there. Stop. Uh, Don't even you. try it. Don't uh, even try it. Uh, uh, so. Bu- uh, spot a tea. Y- your T looks wanky. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Craig and Bentley saying. were indicted for the willful murder of PC Miles. Oh, they both were indicted. Mm-hmm. The two cases were, of course, very different. The case against the shooter, Craig, yeah. was clear. And it th- it was later described as very strong and that any verdict other than guilty of murder would have been perverse. Yeah, he's the he's the guy up to no good, right? Mm-hmm. The murder case against the non-shooter, Bentley, was much more tif- difficult. Yeah, he's just a follower. To succeed, the Crown had to prove that Bentley was a party to a common purpose, which is an agreement with Craig that they would use any violence necessary to avoid arrest. Oh, but the Crown also had to prove, as part of this arrangement, that Bentley knew that Craig had a gun. Wow. The Crown case was that Bentley had indi- that incited Craig to shoot PC Miles and relied heavily upon the words, let him have it, Chris. Bentley's defense was that he did not incite Craig, and he did not even know that Craig had a gun until the first shot was fired. Specifically, Bentley denied using the words, let him have it, Chris. He also relied upon the inferences available from the fact that he had remained alongside D.C. Fairfax, making no effort to escape or use his weapons. Let him have it, Chris. Craig was below the age of 18, so he would not face execution. Bentley, though, was not. That's the rub. The trial took place before Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, Lord Goddard, between December 9th and 11th. There were many details to consider during trial. The prosecution wasn't sure how many shots were fired and by whom, and a ballistic expert cast doubt on whether Craig could have hit Miles if he had shot at him deliberately. Hmm. The fatal bullet was not found, as Craig had used bullets of different undersized calibers, and the sawn-off barrel made the range from which he fired inaccurate. Hmm. There was also a question of what Bentley meant when he said let him have it, if he even said it at all. They were considering if he meant hand over the gun or shoot it. Could be just hand it over. Let Bent- him have it. Yeah. Bentley Drop was it. examined by a psychiatrist whose report stated that he was illiterate and had developmental disabilities. Oh. However, the psychiatrist did state that it was his opinion that while Bentley was of low intelligence, he was not a feeble minded person and was fit to stand trial. English law at the time did not recognize diminished responsibility due to developmental delay, though it did exist in Scottish law. Hmm. Criminal insanity became the only medical defense to murder, and Bentley was definitely not insane. 
The jury took 75 minutes to rule that both Bentley and Craig were guilty of the murder. Bentley was sentenced to death with a plea for mercy on December 11th, 1952. Hmm. Craig was ordered to be detained and was eventually released in 1963 after serving 10 years. Wow. He has been a law-abiding citizen ever since. Really? Bentley's lawyers filed appeals highlighting the ambiguities of the ballistic evidence, Bentley's mental age, and the fact that he did not fire the fatal shot. These efforts failed to reverse his conviction, however, and the death sentence was mandatory. At 9 a.m. on the morning of January 28, 1953, Derek Bentley was hanged at Wadsworth Prison, London, by Albert Pierpont. When it was announced the execution had been carried out, there were protests outside the prison, and two people were arrested and later fined for damage to property. And then this guy writes a book later, okay, and he kind of says, you know, that um, that he sh- that he doesn't think that Bentley should have been executed, okay. and um, and also because he had a developmental disability, yeah, and the inconsistencies in the police and the forensic yeah. evidence and the conduct of the trial, yeah. Um, he thought that the 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 police officer was actually killed by a bullet from a gun, other than Craig's. Oh, and, and there's a third shooter? Well, because the police were exchanging fire. Oh. So it might have ricocheted off something, of something? Yeah. Ricochet. I think that's what the movie Ricochet might be about. I'm not sure. I don't think. So There's a movie called Ricochet, though. Um, There was also um, a posthumous pardon. Oh, really? A posthumous what? pardon? I love posthumous pardons. Because there, there was a fundamental question whether he was even fit to plead. Yeah, maybe I don't love posthumous pardons. And um, his impairment was partly congenital, okay. and it was worsened by the childhood head injury, mm. and it was complicated by uncontrolled epilepsy that he also oh, had. Oh, boy. Poor guy. The combination was very serious, and a review of his school and medical records showed that at the time, he'd been assessed as borderline feeble-minded and educationally, quote, very retarded and quite illiterate. Hmm. Bentley was unable to recognize all of the um, letters of the alphabet even. Okay. There remains a real doubt about whether this material about his mental capacity was made available to the defense. And whatever the case, this material was not disclosed to the jury. Even if Bentley was fit to plead, these were matters clearly relevant to his complicity and his ability to enter into the necessary agreement with Craig. Following the execution, there was a public sense of unease about the decision, resulting in a long campaign that was mostly led by Bentley's sister Iris to secure a yeah. posthumous pardon for him. Okay. In March 1966, he rem- his remains were removed from Wandsworth Prison and reburied in a family grave. No, that's not kind of nice, I guess. Then on July 29th, 1993... Oh, July 29th, 1993, the same day that In Living Color was on Fox, yeah. Cincinnati Reds pitcher Thomas Browning was arrested for marijuana possession, and Walter Koenig... Chekhov from Star Trek suffers a mild heart attack that same day? Yep. Bentley was granted a royal pardon in respect of the sentence of death passed upon him and carried out. Hmm. However, in English law, this did not quash his conviction for murder. Oh. But eventually, on July 30th, 1998... Oh, on July 30th, 1998, the same day that world's scariest police chases were on Fox? (laughs) Yes. Buffalo Bob Smith, American TV host from Howdy Doody, dies of cancer at age 80 that same day? The Court of Appeals set aside Barry's, uh, Bentley's conviction for murder 45 years earlier. Mm. Though Bentley had not been accused of attacking any of the police officers being shot by Craig, for him to be convicted of murder as an accessory in a joint enterprise, it was necessary for the pr- prosecution to prove that he knew that Craig had a deadly weapon when they began the break-in. 
Lord Chief Justice uh, Bingham of Cornhill Bingham of Cornhill ruled that Lord Goddard had not made it clear to the jury that the prosecution was required to have proved Bentley had known that Craig was armed. Lord Bingham ruled that Bentley's trial had been unfair in that the judge had misdirected the jury and, in his summing up, had put unfair pressure on the jury to convict. Lord Bingham of Cornhill! It is possible that Lord Goddard may have been under pressure since much of the evidence was not directly relevant to Bentley's defense. It's important to note that Lord Bingham did not rule that Bentley was innocent, merely that there had been defects in the trial process. Had Bentley been alive in July 1998 or had been convicted of the offense in more recent years, it would have been likely that he would have faced a retrial. Another factor in the posthumous defense was that a confession recorded by Bentley, which was claimed by the prosecution to be a verbatim record of dictated monologue, ah. was shown by forensic linguist methods to have been largely edited by the policeman. Ah, yeah. And that's they one of the that shit now. One of the earliest uses of forensic linguistics on record. Wow, forensic linguistics, y'all. Yeah, and then there's a little quote by the author at the end. It says, was there some bright side to this dark mess? Maybe. Although it depends on your views about the death penalty, the lingering sense of injustice surrounding Derek Bentley's execution greatly strengthened the opposition to the death penalty, eventually leading to its abolition in the UK in 1965. Oh, okay. That's that's the story of Derek Bentley. That's a pretty sad story for sure. Yeah, it's kind of a sad one. It is. It is a little sad. I'm glad you have three in November, so we've got to figure out what we're doing. Uh, And we will hopefully have some guests next week. That's right. Uh, And we'll... But that's it. We're going to leave We're you there. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. On American Timelines. It really sure is shorter when we don't have some guest blabbing on and on about God knows what. About their stupid show or their yeah. stupid whatever. Yeah, my favorite whatever. I got to talk about it. No, just kidding. <laughs> We're just kidding, guests. Yeah, we love all of you We're guests. just kidding, former guests. We don't hate any of your guts. Not at all. But one guts we do hate is Hitler's. <laughs> Thank right. you for listening to American Timelines. Please download and subscribe. Yes, please. And give us reviews, bunch of stars, and tell people, tell your friends to listen. Again, don't forget the thing about your grandparents' iPhones. Yep. Also, Matt Truman Ego Trip is that's an awesome band, and he does the opening. Go to music. Bandcamp and buy it. And at the end of the episode, I usually play a song he has that you can get on Bandcamp, and they're fucking great. I love his albums. And pay more than what they, you know, they're cheap on there. They're really cheap, five bucks or something. And you can give them more uh, to support that awesome band and keep him making music. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye. What bail through?
Mushroom and Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time by their music.